just because it's in an art gallery, it doesn't mean you can't have a really dynamic, difficult relationship with it. You're allowed not to like things. Hello and welcome to Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design, how we live, the clothes we choose, and how we organize our space. I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, a certified KonMari consultant and personal stylist. I'm here to guide you on your journey to live a happy, fulfilled life. Every Tuesday, you'll get new insight on what it means to live well, plus actionable tips. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. Our guest today is curator and director Martin Clark. Art has taken Martin all over the world, from the Arnolfini in Bristol, Tate St. Ives in Cornwall, to the Bergen Kunsthall in Norway. Sharing his love of new art and artists is what drives Martin every day. He is currently director and curator of Camden Arts Centre in London. And he also happens to be my upstairs neighbour. Martin had his colours done with me just before lockdown. More on that shortly. Well, Martin, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. And I'm delighted to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. It's really nice to be here. So you've had a busy week, haven't you? You have a, a new exhibition, Hot Off the Press or Hot on the Walls. Exactly, hot on the walls. And we've done a catalogue for this one. So that's certainly hot off the press as well. But yeah, the gallery has been closed for six months. So it just feels fantastic to open the doors again. And we've got, as you say, a new exhibition, which we've been installing a bit slower than usual, because we've had to work with smaller teams and yeah, with all of the sort of PPE and all the new safety measures. But it's been a fantastic few weeks, exhausting, but fun. And uh, yeah, opened on Thursday. So we've had a great response already. Oh, that's fantastic. And the botanical mind. So tell me a bit more about that then, the inspiration for this. Yeah, so it's an exhibition that I've been working on for about two years with my co-curator, actually, who's the curator at Camden Art Centre, Gina Bunfeld. And Gina has spent many years actually travelling out to the Amazon, and she was very interested in the plant world. And so we thought it was a really rich an interesting area for an exhibition and we, we we took it online and we did a kind of expanded project online now to be able to actually open the gallery uh, the, the exhibition in the galleries it's a really special thing because you know online's fantastic and you can reach people in a in an amazing way but when it comes to artworks or the sort of position they hold within various different civilizations and cultures there's really no replacement for that experience of being in a room with them to you know have an experience which isn't mediated through a screen. Yes, I can appreciate that. It's, uh, it seems like a long time since that's been possible, really. It really does. And it feels like a great moment, actually, to think about plants again. You know, we've all been forced to become a bit more plant-like. We've all had to slow down. We've all had to stay in one place. We've all had to attend to our sort of environments. Our worlds have shrunk a bit. And that's a bit like plants. You know, people sort of denigrate plants because they don't move around and they don't they're not like animals but actually plants have a very different sort of knowledge of place and they just relate to their environment in incredible ways actually and so um yeah with the whole pandemic going on it's felt quite a timely moment to to think about plants yeah certainly you couldn't have timed it better really transitioning us from our interior lives what is the process of curating an exhibition how do you narrow down such an expansive topic yeah i mean that was the challenge 
So Camden Art Centre, which is the gallery in London where the exhibition is and where I, I work, it's, it's not the Tate, so we don't have rooms and rooms and rooms. And so the biggest challenge was exactly that, thinking about how we made an exhibition that you know included all of this wealth of material from all of these different cultures and times and places and artists, but that was coherent and made sense. But really the organising principle is, is this notion of patterns and also patterns that you find in music. I know you're a musician as well. And, you know, throughout every culture, whether that's the sort of Western tradition, if you think about medieval um, mysticism and, and natural science, through to, you know, Eastern philosophies and cultures, this correspondence between patterns and music, nature, that's really been the organising principle. So although the show's about plants, it's as much about the sort of natural patterns and harmonies and rhythms that we find all around us. You know, many cultures use these patterns either decoratively in design or architecture, but also in art. You know, plants for a long time were sort of always seen as the lowest form of life beneath everything, beneath even the simplest animals. They're probably the most ancient form of life. Well, they are the most ancient form of life. They were the, they're millions of years before anything else. But they also produce the conditions for everybody else and everything else. So they, they create the world, really, and they create the atmosphere we breathe. And I think in many different ways, there's a lot we can learn from plants. And... As you mentioned, I think in your blurb about the show, today there is that greater urgency than ever to reconsider our relationship with the natural world. So, yeah, how do you feel the botanical mind addresses that issue? Well, it's interesting because the, I mean, the exhibition happened before the pandemic in terms of all of the planning. And we were due to open the show just two weeks after the lockdown happened. So it was immediately postponed. But even before this, you know, it was, it's increasingly obvious that the biggest crisis facing us, and there are many at the moment, the issue of the climate emergency was really huge. And, and it was something that actually the art world hadn't been very good at thinking about and dealing with. You know, I make exhibitions and a lot of my work is moving objects around the world as well as people. I was traveling a lot, as many people in the art world do. You would fly to different countries fairly regularly to see artists or exhibitions. There's a culture of kind of global biennales happening almost every week. And although I wasn't traveling as much as some people, it was clear that it was unsustainable. So it's not a very overt message. And this isn't a show about environmentalism or environmental activism or any of that directly. But it definitely speaks to a kind of responsibility and a responsibility not to always position ourselves as humans above or against the environment, but to see ourselves as within it. And And I think that when the pandemic hit, it really demonstrated it to everybody. And we saw globally that whether we like it or not, we are part of a much bigger web of relationships and web of effects. And yeah, we have to address that and we have to take that on board and we have to find better ways of living with the environment rather than against it somehow. Yes, that's certainly very true. And have you had a, a chance to think about a, a longer term change, how flying or bringing in artwork from other countries? Do you know yet what implications that will have for future exhibitions where you go more local or what um, do you know at this point? It's a really good question. And it's it's something that, as I say, we were grappling with before and now feels even more urgent. The thing that makes it difficult is that we've always been so committed to sort of internationalism and to a really outward looking, 
global perspective and and being somewhere like London, we're very lucky because it's a hugely kind of multicultural city and that's absolutely part of what we celebrate through our exhibitions and through the work that we do. But it also has always felt incredibly important to be bringing artists and bringing ideas and positions and viewpoints and people from other places to the galleries and, and showing that work. So the challenge is how we do that without having this impact through flying and flying people and flying objects. What I'm thinking is that we want to get to a point where, yes, we will definitely be working more locally and we need to be supporting artists in the UK and in London. And it's a really difficult time for anybody in the creative industry. So it's a good moment to be doing that. And then in terms of that more kind of international vision, we're thinking about rather than shipping large objects, paintings, sculptures, which is very expensive and it's very, um, yeah, it's very unenvironmentally friendly. If we can bring a person and then they can be with us for extended periods of time, then maybe we can provide the conditions for work to be made here and made for exhibition. So um, it's still early days, but we're thinking that a model where rather than moving big objects and lots of big things, huge exhibitions around the world, you know, if you move an individual and then give them studio space and time and support them, then, um, yeah, work can be made in this country or on site towards an exhibition. And that's very much in the ethos of what Camden Art Centre has always done. We have a gallery programme, but we've always had residences, and that's a big part of, of how we support um, and nurture artists. And we've also always been about making, so we have lots of courses and education programmes and learning programmes. And so the thing that I love about Camden Art Centre is that you can see a incredible exhibition by a world-class artist you know an exhibition by an artist that you know two years later you'll see in Tate Modern but then in the next room there's people making ceramics and then in another room people are maybe engaged in a drawing course so making and looking and thinking is all very close and so that feels like one vision for how things could move with Brexit and all of these other things happening it feels so important not to just say oh yes we've got to shrink everything back down so as i say the challenge is how we we we, we make it sustainable but we don't lose that internationalism and that yeah that outlook that's a key point and i i love that concept of making it immersive and having an artist residency where presumably you and the people who see the exhibition get to know that artist on a different level as well. I remember, I think this was very early on in the lockdown, you presented a, a digital sort of experience of an exhibition. You did a tour that was filmed and it was maybe 15 minutes long and I really enjoyed that and I wonder if that could be a possibility as well. It, it seems so long ago, the beginning of lockdown, I'd almost forgotten, but no, you're absolutely right. We had an exhibition on in the galleries by an amazing artist from Central America called Vivian Suta. And yeah, she lives in Guatemala and she'd made this amazing exhibition and there was two more weeks to go and then the lockdown happened. And we're all so busy. And certainly before the lockdown, you remember the pace of life. It was crazy. And so many people leave it to the last week to come and see a show. So we thought, let's do this video walkthrough and let's try and, yeah, at least give people some experience who, who sadly won't be able to see it now. And it was so popular. And we had so many likes and hits. And, and as you say, what was great about that was that we had people all over the world who viewed that video, people who would never normally have been able to see the show. So we've definitely learned from that. And... We're actually going to do a video walkthrough of the botanical mind. So we're going to do that next week with exactly the same kind of model and format of, of that one that we did. So now I think it's a great way to reach people. And as I say, it's never 
a replacement for the experience of being in a gallery. But we can't all be everywhere. And there's lots of exhibitions all over the world that I would love to see and I can't. Yeah, to have that resource and to be able to have that other experience, that's really valuable. Yes. And I'm yeah very interested in the concept of how you can actively try to engage with new audiences and with people who perhaps wouldn't typically go to art galleries and exhibitions. And that seems like one possibility. But I wonder, yeah, I wonder how you feel about bringing in new audiences. This last six months, it's really taught us a lot being able to do these digital projects. Our public programs in particular have all been online and we would definitely continue that beyond. We're, we're thinking that it's a fantastic way to reach new audiences. We were talking podcasts is a, is a brilliant way to do that because it's just, it's such a nice format and art's about looking and it's about being and thinking and it is a conversation. Art is always a conversation. It's a conversation between the artists when they're making the work and that thing they're making and then between that object and you when you come to it and everybody brings different things and their own experiences. So yeah, we're, we're thinking a lot about this idea of dialogue and and it's not a passive thing going to an art gallery and it shouldn't be you shouldn't walk around in silence it should be something that makes you think and talk and discuss and I always tell people it's really you don't have to like everything it's kind of fine to think that's really not interesting or I don't get that at all you know just because it's in an art gallery it doesn't mean you can't have a really dynamic difficult relationship with it you're allowed not to like things and I love that idea of, of having a dynamic relationship, of having that conversation and building a community around it. And then in outreach, actually finding people where they are and approaching them. I know in marketing, that's a huge principle. Engage with your audience where they are and then bring them to you instead of just expecting them somehow to miraculously come. <laughs> and I wonder if, if the language of art could be a contributing factor as well to engaging with new audiences. And to be perfectly honest, something that I've struggled with in the art world is I feel like there's a lot of rubbish talked in the name of art in terms of descriptions, captions, a bit of pontification. And I don't know if, if you think that's changing or is there an art speak that's expected? Well, there shouldn't be. I mean, we talk about this a lot as well because, uh, again, you know, as a curator, when you work with an artist, you work with somebody who you think is really great and you want to show them to other people, right? And so part of that is making the right conditions for the artwork. But the other part is making the right conditions for the audience, you know, giving them a way in. I would never expect everybody to like every single exhibition or artist that we present in the same way I wouldn't expect everybody to like every film that I like or band that I like. But I want people to feel comfortable enough to have their own opinion and to not feel threatened or it's about this idea of authority as well. I think people get put off because they think they're being told what they should think or what they should like, or that if something's in an art gallery and it's on a wall and it's got a label and you don't quite see it in that way, somehow you're getting it wrong. You're not clever enough. You're, you haven't read enough books or thought, you know, deeply enough. And so I think any language that does that, I think it does two things actually. One, it sort of, belittles the the viewer and it, it sort of does a disservice to them but also the artwork you know sometimes people need something you need to give people a way in artists might spend years thinking and working on an exhibition and you can't expect somebody to walk in from the street look at it and then just get everything immediately so i think it's important that people are given enough that 
if they want to, and that's important as well, not everybody has to <laughs> has to want to like art. I think there's this assumption that, you know, we have to get everybody, you know, you're allowed not to like things as well in the world. But there needs to be enough to give you a way in, and then it needs to be enough left open for you to bring your own interpretation, feelings, ideas, and thoughts to it. So... So I agree with you. I've seen exactly that sort of art speak. We try very hard to avoid that. But, you know, I guess the only other thing I'd say about that is we, we try not to patronise people as well. And I think to find ways to allow people to engage at the level they want to is important. So you can look at it and decide whether you want to learn more. If you do, maybe you can read a bit more. If you're really interested, maybe there is a talk online or an interview or, you know, an essay. But you shouldn't have to read the essay to be able to look at the work but but it's it's important that there is that depth there as well if people want to go into it yes and i love that concept of different levels of engagement too because i think yeah if they serve to enhance the work of art it's a bit like an ornamentation in music you don't just do it for the sake of it or to kind of complicate it or show how fancy you are <laughs> but it's yeah more of enhancing whatever it is you're doing so I, I like that concept of having the the text do that instead of surrounding it in a cloud that maybe says more about the person writing it than the the piece itself exactly exactly imagine if you live the life you really want you know your dream life have you ever taken time to picture what it would look like I mean, what it would really look like? We're not talking about the life you feel you should have, but deep down, the life you secretly want. Your ideal life. Maybe you already have a vision. Picture an iconic VW camper van pootling down the coastal path. Maybe you're in Cornwall, the Amalfi Coast, or alongside a fjord in Norway. Yes, the scenery is stunning, and you're getting ready to stop for a picnic. There's a perfectly ripe, oozy cheese waiting for you, a selection of your favourite treats, and there may, or may not, be vintage vinyl and a portable gramophone to complete the picture. But... That's never going to happen, right? Wouldn't it be nice to take a step back, sweep aside all your worries, and imagine that's where I come in? I'm your host, Alexandria Lawrence, and I've developed an exclusive questionnaire for the Also in Pink community to help you create a vision of your ideal life. Simply join the Also in Pink email list and you'll get instant access to our Ideal Lifestyle Vision questionnaire. Go on then. Make a cup of your favourite tea or whatever floats your boat. Go to alsoinpink.com and click Start Now. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life. Going back to early March, before COVID consciousness, for better or worse, really came to the UK, you were one of my first seasonal colour analysis clients. And for anyone not aware of seasonal colour analysis, this is a method of discovering what your best colours are. So that impacts clothing choices, accessories. And when you get this right, it really makes things pop and yeah, it sounds a bit like an ad, but you look dewy and fresh and glowy. <laughs> and is seasonal color analysis a concept you were familiar with before we did our session together? It wasn't, no. 
So what inspired you to want to give it a go then? I'm interested in clothes and fashion and I don't spend like lots of money on clothes and I'm not extravagant, but I've always been interested in fashion as, a, as another kind of artistic discipline, really, a kind of incredibly creative form. And uh, so, you know, I would always buy a lot of magazines and I look, look at a lot of fashion pictures and I'm interested in the history of clothes as well. And I'm interested in colour, of course, as a curator. So I'm a redhead and I have a wardrobe of very limited colours, actually, I open my wardrobe, it's almost entirely navy blue. And I think I just thought that was, you know, that was the colour that suited me. And whilst I was a real fan of experimentation and bravery and, and flamboyance on other people, I certainly never applied that to myself. And I was really intrigued to find out whether the assumptions I'd made about myself, actually, and the colours that suited me, were what was going to come through when you did your analysis. Curious to know more about colour analysis? Ever wondered why certain colours suit you more than others? Discovering your true colours is a transformative experience. Wearing your true colours evens out your complexion, makes you look more youthful and energetic. Want to know a little secret? It's all about your skin tone and how colour reflecting close to your face reacts with your skin. Colour analysis is a powerful blend of genetics, science and psychology. When done accurately, seasonal colour analysis is something you only need to do once. Your skin tone is genetic. You may naturally tan, your skin may get slightly paler as you age, but your skin tone is yours for life, as are your true colours. There is a version of every colour that works for you. The professional colour analysis process will show you how certain colours are particularly flattering when worn close to your face. Professional seasonal colour analysis gives you the courage to be bold and choose colours you might not have realised work for you. Yes, I think having an artistic eye or having an awareness of colour prior to doing this definitely helps you perhaps see the subtle differences. Yeah, how did you feel when we began? Do you remember? I know it's a lot has happened since. No, no, I'm, I do remember though. To start with, you were putting colours on me that I would never have thought of wearing, and which I also almost thought you know, there was these sort of unwritten rules that they wouldn't suit me because of my colouring, you know, my skin tone and my hair colour. And and so the revelation was really that, yeah, that this whole sort of palette of colours that I would have just assumed had I just looked at them on clothes in a, in a store were not my colours. What was interesting was the way that they were draped and then you could see how they reflected onto your skin and how your the tones in your skin and your eyes, etc., would would really shift and change. And I haven't thought about it like this, but it, it, it's obvious in a way, because that's how when you're making a painting, you know, the way that you put colours next to each other is so much happens in that. And one colour in a tube or on a palette looks entirely, looks like a totally different colour if you put it next to another colour, changes it completely. So of course, you know, that's going to happen when you when you wear colours and when you put them next to your skin and, and, and your hair, etc. So it was, no, it was really interesting. And I was really happy with my I think I was autumn, wasn't I? Yes, you're autumn. So when I came back and yeah, I saw Rosie, my wife, and my daughter Kitty and, and Oscar, my son, they were they were not in the least bit surprised that I was autumn. They said, Yeah, we would have totally told you we were gonna be autumn. But I like autumn now and it's always my favourite time of the year. So yeah, it was I was happy with that. 
It's nice when your favourite time of the year corresponds with the colours that really suit you as well. Those lovely earthy muted colours and I remember burgundy being particularly good on you. Yeah and I would never normally think about red, those deep reds and those sort of rusty sort of orange, rusty orange colours as well. And I, I actually I do now have items of clothing in both those colours that I wear a lot actually. Oh, that's amazing. I was very curious about that transition, if if there is one. I know there's been less of an opportunity to probably acquire items or change your wardrobe during a, a pandemic. Slightly more challenging maybe to experiment. But yeah, I, I, I don't know if you feel differently now, if you wear sort of all black or if you wear a navy suit, would you uh, think of having a colour in your palette in the centre, which is the important bit really, sort of your upper chest under the neck area, the bit that really reflects up onto your face? Yeah, no, sadly, I haven't been wearing many suits over the last six months. As you say, it's been such a funny time because, you know, I've been working from home like so many other people. And it was fantastic, actually, one of the one of the great things about going back to work three weeks ago was one, installing the shows and being back in the gallery, but was just putting on clothes that, that I would wear to work. So that was really nice. And I think we did it in like January or February. And so I bought a couple of jumpers in these tones and these colours shortly afterwards. And then, of course, lockdown, it's just been unbelievably beautiful weather. So it was about getting them back out of the cupboard and uh, you know, I'm still waiting for the weather to get cool enough, but, but they're standing by. But yeah, no, definitely. It's been really nice. And also to think that, as you say, it doesn't have to be like this massive, this huge flamboyant change. It's just about integrating small things in sometimes that, yeah, that just work and just you know, break up the navy blue. Yes, that's very true. And I have to say that when I was doing my training in colour analysis, I was ever so slightly sceptical before going in and thought, oh, is this really going to make a difference? Is this a little bit of a con? Or can you actually see these differences? And being an artistic person in the past, I should have realized that, of course, colors next to one another um, is a massive thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated. And I did a lot of it before the lockdown. But of course, in recent months, the only person I can really practice on is Ben, <laughs> my husband, <Yes. laughs> who happens to be autumn as well. But if you get those colors really right, it just feels it one with you, I think. You're the first person who has a beard that I, I tried this with. So there are, you know, there are some added challenges to that because you have less surface of kind of skin to work with. Yeah, but I think I feel like we could both see the difference. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Would you say that you have a daily habit or ritual that brings you joy? Listening to music, I think. I mean, I listen to music every day. And, and I mean, really listen, not just put something on in the background and then do other things. I really love music. And so, yeah, every day I try and make some time to just sit down and actually only do that, really listen to something. And I think I probably achieve that. Yeah, I think I do that every day. There's always a moment when I can, even if it's just for 20 minutes, half an hour, when I can sit down and listen to something. Excellent. So we've reached the uh, the final round now, and I have a few quickfire questions for you to end the show. Oh, exciting. So what would you say your most treasured possession is? And no judgment, of course. This is hard because although I, I work with artworks and objects, and so I do love things, and I believe in the kind of power and quality of things, but it was really difficult to think of something that I really, really treasured. I have this piano, which my father... He was a publican and he used to work for InCoop, 
as an area manager in London. And one of the pubs was refurbishing in the late 70s and they were throwing this piano out. It was the Bow Bells in Bow. And it's this bright orange piano and he brought it home. And I was really very young at the time, so I don't remember that happening. But I was about two or three. And we've had this piano ever since. And all through my upbringing and we moved around a bit, there was always this red piano. I used to like playing it. And I'm not good at the piano, but I used to sort of tinkle about on it. And, um, and I've just kept it. And, you know, we've moved all over the world and many times over the last 15, 20 years. But we've always dragged this red piano behind us. And it was in storage, actually, because we were in Norway. And when we came back and moved into the flat here, we finally, during lockdown, got the opportunity to get our storage back. And this red piano came back and uh, we thought, oh my God, what are we going to do with it in the flat? But it's fantastic. It's in, it's here. And so, yeah, that, I think that's probably my most treasured possession. Oh, that's a beautiful story. And what's your favourite article of clothing or accessory and something in your current wardrobe? So I always look forward to autumn because I like wearing autumn clothes much more than summer clothes. <laughs> so finally I can get jumpers and coats. And I have a coat which I bought in Norway. And there's a really great designer there called T. Michael, who runs a beautiful shop in Bergen. He's a tailor. And he has this line of rainwear, raincoats called Norwegian rain. And Bergen is the rainiest city in Europe. It rains like all the time. So there's a very good market for raincoats in Bergen. Anyway, I bought one of these raincoats before I left. And yeah, I, I love that coat. And yeah, bittersweet because I don't really want the weather to get rainy, but it's always nice when it is and I can wear it. And top tip for someone with an autumn colour palette that it's much easier to find clothing uh, in your colours during your season. Oh, yes. Interesting. So anyone else out there who thinks they might be in autumn, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> go shopping. Absolutely. So, Martin, where do you go to get inspired? I get inspired everywhere, really. And I get inspired by things and by things I read and look at. But I actually, you know, we mentioned earlier, we're neighbours and we both live really close to the river here. And I love being by the river, actually. So if I need to take some time or I need to think, then, yeah, I go to the river. It's beautiful there. Yes, I can't imagine living without it, really. I'm permanently attached to the Thames in this part of the world. And what's one book or resource that you'd recommend for everyone? Oh, I love reading, as I said, and so I'm always reading lots of books at the same time. And it's difficult to just pick one. There's a great writer called Olivia Lang who writes about art but also other things. And she has just released in the last six months a book called Funny Weather, which is a collection of essays on art and artists, which is really fantastic. She also wrote another really beautiful book a few years ago called The Lonely City, which was about loneliness not being seen as something that was necessarily bad, yeah, not something that we should be frightened of or, or, or worried about, but that loneliness could be a really productive and creative and special space, particularly for art, for the making of art. This is about New York, this book, and even in a city like New York where it seems impossible to be lonely because you're surrounded by people and windows and, you know, you can be even more lonely in a place like that. But it's a, it sounds a bit melancholy, but it's a really beautiful book about art. So, yeah, The Lonely City by Olivia Lang. And what are you grateful for? I mean, I enjoy, enjoy life and I enjoy what I do and I've got a fantastic family. Yeah, my, my kids, Oscar and Kitty and, and Rosie. And I'm grateful that I get to do what I do and go out and meet 
people and work with artists and make exhibitions and do the thing I love, but that I come home and I get to be with them. So yeah, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it's really nice having that, those two aspects and that balance actually. So I'm really grateful for that. Grateful for family. I think that's been a, a huge thing for a lot of people during the pandemic. I mean, I could have done with a little bit less of them over the last six months, but... <laughs> I'm sure you're not alone with that, yes. We'll get that balance back. <laughs> and finally, what do you love most about life? I like change, maybe. And what I mean by that is that everything is always changing. And every time you get up, rather than being frightened or worried about change, I really like that it's, everything's moving, everything's shifting. You never know what's going to happen. And that can be good and bad, but it is what it is in a way. And that sense of process and change, that's what I like about life. I hate the idea of things staying the same or I think everybody should embrace change and difference and yeah, celebrate that. Yes, and keeping life interactive, as we talked about earlier. I think that's key. Well, thank you so much, Martin. It's been a great pleasure chatting with you about all things art, creativity, engaging new audiences. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Alexandria. It's been really, it's been lovely. And um, yeah, it's really weird. We're, we're, we're literally one floor away from each other. So though we're on the screen, it feels very close. But it's, yeah, thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Well, hope you enjoyed that chat with director-curator Martin Clark. Be sure to check out his stunning new exhibition, The Botanical Mind, at Camden Arts Centre. So, here are some key takeaways from our conversation. For a start, how can we all be more sustainable in our work, in our lives? Let's begin a conversation and explore the possibilities. As with most things in life, communication is key. And the same goes for the art world. Whether we prefer to breeze through an exhibition, read all the notes, or delve even deeper with essays and online talks, we should feel able to experience art in a way that works for us. Yes, calling all content creators, always try to engage instead of impress. How can we, as users, experience what you're offering in an engaging way? The creative world is and should be welcoming to us all. And if navy blue is the predominant color in your wardrobe, don't worry. It's always possible to add in your best colors and up your style game. You could even book a discovery call with a seasonal color specialist, like me. That's our show then. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandria and this is Also in Pink, the podcast all about lifestyle design. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Also in Pink wherever you get your podcasts. And the absolute best way to show your support is to write a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. This really helps more than anything to promote the show. And of course, tell all your friends. Thank you so much for your support. Until next time, have a wonderful week. Redefine what's possible and create your ideal life.